Hey there, Michael Kentris here, and welcome to the Neurotransmitters. A quick message before you get to the show. We have some exciting news. Starting in June of 2024, the Neurotransmitters is going to start doing some live case-based discussions. So if you or someone you know is interested in either presenting a case or being part of the discussion group, send us an email at contact at the neurotransmitters.com. Also in the show notes, with the subject line, case-based discussion. Looking forward to hearing from you soon. Hello, and welcome to the Neurotransmitters, a podcast about everything neurology with the goal of reducing your neurophobia. I'm Dr. Michael Kentris. Today we'll be talking about how to approach a patient with a suspected neurologic issue. This will likely be very basic information for anyone who's been practicing medicine for any significant length of time. But for those who are just starting clinical work, or for the person who has a passing interest in what goes into the thought process behind assessing a patient and coming to a diagnosis, hopefully this will provide some first principles in terms of how to think about the approach to a patient, which can be broadly applied across medicine in general, and some will be a little more specific to neurology. So as a neurologist, a lot of times people are referred for what is thought to be a neurologic issue, and one of your first jobs is to figure out, is it in fact a neurologic problem, or is it related to something else going on? Some of the most common complaints that you'll see in the outpatient setting will include things like headaches, numbness, weakness. And while you can get similar complaints on the inpatient side of things, a lot of times you're going to see more altered mental status or confusion, uh, stroke or stroke-like symptoms, other types of more acutely developing neurologic problems. And even from just the chief complaint, you're already kind of starting to formulate, all right, what are the things that I think this could be? And what are the things I need to look into what kind of workup has already been done, and kind of gathering all this information together to create your differential diagnosis. What things do you think are most likely to be causing the problem? And what can you do to hopefully help it? So as you're talking with the person, you're trying to get a thorough history, right? You want it to be clear, logical, comprehensive, and hopefully lead you towards the answer. There are a lot of mnemonics that students are taught to do this. Uh, old carts, OPQRST, uh, to try and make sure that you don't miss any kind of those essential elements of the history. Personally, I'm not a big fan of the review of systems, as it is typically taught, where you kind of go organ system by organ system and ask about things that may be totally irrelevant to the reason why the patient is there to see you today. Of course, it's important to ask about questions to relevant problems, uh, but that, I think, should be up to your discretion as the physician. So I keep talking about the history a lot, and that's because it is so important to making a correct diagnosis uh, in every field of medicine. There was actually a nice little summary article written by Devin Zander uh, just in January of 2022, where they were looking at the aphorism, quote, 80% of diagnoses can be made by history alone. This idea is based off of several papers. Uh, the first one of these is from The Lancet by Robert Platt back in 1947, who showed that in 74 out of 100 patients, the history correctly predicted the final diagnosis. And this was again tested back in 1975 by Hampton and colleagues, who showed a similar rate, around 82%. And when these studies were averaged out, it came to around 75%, where the diagnosis, the final diagnosis, was the same as the uh, initial diagnosis after the initial history. I like that this article also points out a couple potential biases. Obviously, the first is that the first thing you're doing with the patient when they come to you for a problem is you're taking a history. And so that is going to be the first thing that guides your evaluation. I also like that it points out that the history can also be limited in an emergency setting or in a patient who's not able to express themselves. 
uh, increasing the utility of an exam and additional studies in those situations. Anecdotally, I would say this also matches up with my own experience of just taking a thorough history more likely than anything else is going to get you closer to the right answer than most tests you're probably going to think of. I remember a specific case um, when I was a resident. One of my co-residents was uh, presenting someone a morning report, and it had been a patient who, you know, had smelled something burning and then passed out. And so we had gotten consulted on the neurology service for concern for, you know, did they have a seizure? Is that why they lost consciousness? And so he went and saw this patient, and it turns out, no, that is not what had happened. What had happened was the patient's house had been on fire, and they passed out because of the smoke. So obviously not a primary neurologic issue in this case. But if you just get a very superficial story, like, well, yeah, I guess that could be. And I want to contrast this with the story of another patient. Uh, they had been having about three, four months of these new onset of panic attacks, which would last for maybe a minute or two at a time. Uh, there was no real history of panic attacks or any significant mental health disorders in the past, and this person was middle-aged, so it was a little atypical. I ended up seeing them after an episode of loss of consciousness resulting in a car accident, and this was obviously very suspicious for not just anxiety attacks or panic attacks, uh, we got some head imaging, and it did show a right temporal mass. The EEG was done, which did show epileptiform discharges in that same area. So obviously, contrast this with the first story. Um, this one we have spells that were initially written off as not neurologic, which in hindsight very likely were uh, small seizures without loss of consciousness. Again, the point here is just to emphasize how important the history is and how sometimes innocuous things may eventually become important. And just being as thorough as you can to make sure that you have all the pertinent information so that you can get your patient to a correct diagnosis. Anecdotally, I find that just having a regular conversation with someone is one of the best ways to get that information, to establish that rapport that is going to help facilitate that physician-patient relationship. Um... You know, in neurology, we often do have long conversations. I've gotten in the, the habit. Uh, I know not every doctor carries a black bag anymore. I, I do have one, and inside of it, I actually have a folding stool. And we'll often sit down with the patient, talk for a while, and that lets them know that you're, you're there to have this conversation, to talk for however long it takes to try and get to the right answer. And I, I do think that that uh, unspoken communication comes through well. After you finish getting your story down, we move on to the neurologic exam, and hopefully you're able to focus in the pertinent parts of the neurologic exam based off of the history, what you think is going on by this point in time. The first time you see any patient, you should do a thorough and complete neurologic assessment. But depending on the nature of the complaint, maybe you'll do a little more extra mental status testing, maybe some extra strength testing, some more obscure reflexes. So there are lots of ways that the neurologic exam can be tailored to the individual, depending on what you're thinking, what you need to evaluate for. So linking the history with your exam, you're able to take these two pieces, and that really forms the, the bedrock of creating a neurologic differential diagnosis. Using the timeline that you've got in your history, whether the problem has been more acute, occurring over seconds, minutes, hours, uh, versus subacute over days to weeks, or even chronic problems over months to years, with where do you localize the neurologic dysfunction in the nervous system? Where in the neuroaxis do you think the problem is most likely? And this approach is described in many different books, but the one that I found it most approachable and most concisely written 
was actually in a book by Dr. Aaron Berkowitz called Clinical Neurology and Neuroanatomy. I think this is actually a very well-written book. Uh, the sentences are very digestible, especially when you compare it to some of the more uh, Bible-esque neurology textbooks like uh, Victor's or Bradley's, things like that. Uh, this is a great starting neuro book. Uh, it's very well divided, the first half into neuroanatomy, the second part into clinical neuropathology. So you're able to go back and forth between those two uh, very readily. And I think it's great for people new to neurology, for people wanting more review, wanting a little bit more in-depth, and that can guide you into some of these more uh, dense uh, neurology textbooks or even into the current literature. I'll include a link to that book in the show notes as well. So let's talk a little bit more about the neurologic exam. Uh, neurologists oftentimes are very fond of the neurologic exam and physical exam in general, and that's part of what leads them into the specialty. It's one of the fields of medicine where the exam still matters heavily in our decision-making and can't really readily be replaced by any specific diagnostic testing. The neuro exam is generally broken up into about seven different categories, although that can vary a little bit depending on what book you're looking at. But uh, generally speaking, we have mental status, which includes things like alertness, speech, many other higher cortical functions. The cranial nerves, which include a lot of the special nerves around the head, uh, sight, hearing, many, many others. Motor, including strength, muscle bulk. Sensation, including different types of sensation, which tells us things about different pathways. Reflexes, both your typical knee-jerk, although many patients give me a surprise look when I actually check reflexes in their arms. But there are many accessory reflexes throughout the body that can be useful in certain situations. Coordination, looking at complex movements, tremors, things of that nature. And finally, gait, which requires the coordination of many of these systems together to make sure that someone is able to stand upright, move without falling over. By taking all the elements of the neurologic exam together, we're able to synthesize that, hopefully if we're practicing well, into a lesion, an abnormal area of function somewhere in the nervous system, in the neuroaxis. And by combining that with the timeline of the history, as well as where we think the lesion is, hopefully we can create a very short list of problems on our differential diagnosis. And that will guide our workup, guide our evaluation, what tests need to be done, and what kind of treatments should we consider right from the get-go. Going forward, we're going to dig into each of these aspects of the neurologic exam more in depth, hopefully give some useful tips and tricks when you're performing it, and give some useful resources as we go. My goal for this episode and the next subsequent ones in this more basic vein of neurology is to provide that background for those who aren't in neurology or who are interested or considering neurology or want to just get better at neurology uh, to get some of those first principles so that we can build that knowledge up and build on that as we go into specific disease processes and talk about the literature and things like that down the road. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from today, and please subscribe for future episodes. You can also reach me on Twitter at Dr. Kentris, that's K-E-N-T-R-I-S, or by email at the Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening today, and I hope you join us again for the next episode of The Neurotransmitters.